I do appreciate those songs. Those songs fit perfectly to what we have been studying all week long and the concepts that we've been uh, trying to bring. And um, it has been a really good time to be with you. It's hard to believe Sunday's uh, now here. It's interesting. One dynamic, it feels like a long time being away from home, but the meeting always feels like it goes so fast at the same time. It's a it's a conflict of sorts, <laughs> but it is good to be here. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 34. As you're turning back to Exodus, as we continue to look at this book of redemption, pictures of God showing how he's going to save his people, <clears throat> I'd like for you in your minds to just think of an answer to this question. If I was going to ask you about when you think about God, what is the first characteristic you think of? The very first characteristic you think of when it comes to thinking about the nature and the character of God. And maybe that answer has changed since Wednesday, and I kind of hope that that may be the case. Uh, because this book here in Exodus has been actually leading up to this moment. The book of Exodus is primarily about a discussion about who God is. When Moses is there at the burning bush, Moses is asking, Who should I say to Israel has sent me to you? How should I explain who you are? And if you remember the purpose of the plagues in Egypt, that Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And God's answer was 10 plagues and trying to show here's who God is. And now we come to this pivotal moment of Israel and Moses understanding now fully who God is. Chapter 34, that big 3-4 in your Bible, is a horrible place for that 3-4 to be sitting. We are at the end of chapter 33 last night, and remember in chapter 33, because of the golden calf incident in chapter 32, God in chapter 33 says, I cannot go with you. I will not be in your midst. We are not going to have a tabernacle. You will be able to have the promised land. You will go on up and enjoy the land. But I cannot go with you because I will consume you on the way if I do. Rather than accepting that, the people now mourn. They are repentant over what they have done. Moses goes before God in intercession on behalf of the people, pleading before God that, God, you must go with us. If you do not go with us, then do not bring us up out of this land. And at the end of 33, we have God saying, okay, I will go with you. And Moses is saying, now prove to me that you are going to do it. Show me your glory. Show that you are going to stay with us. And God says, that's what I'm going to do. In chapter 33, that didn't happen yet. And 34 now is the revealing of that. And so here in chapter 34, verse 1, the Lord now is telling Moses, to cut these two new tablets of stone like the first. And I want you then, verse 2, to be ready early in the morning and come up on the Mount Sinai to present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. Verse 3, no one shall come up with you. 
Only Moses. This is a role for Moses alone. What is about to happen. Nobody else. Not Aaron. Not Nadab and Abihu. Not the 73 that we saw earlier. Moses only can do this. Moses, you come up. And so verse 4. Moses cuts the two table, tablets of stone. Just like the first arises early in the morning. As the Lord commanded him. And notice verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud. And stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So visualize as Moses now comes up the mountain and chapter 33 is indicated God has left. We don't have the burning mountain anymore. We don't have pillar of cloud and fire. God said, I'm not in your midst. But now Moses comes up the mountain and here comes the glory of the Lord down the mountain again. And God meets with Moses. And God says in verse 5, I'm going to proclaim my name. Now remember, proclaiming the name means proclaiming the character of who you are. That's why we don't do names that way. We just go by what sounds good. Remember, everybody's name in the Bible means something. That's the character of the individual. God says, I'm going to proclaim my name. And I I hope you have in your mind. Now, what did you think of? If you're going to have the one characteristic that God would describe himself, listen to how God says... This is who I am. Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation? I think this is a fascinating declaration of who God is. That of all the things that God could say about himself, he does not say, I am an angry God. I am a vengeful God. I am a wrathful God. I barbecue people on the spot as often people visualize God in the Old Testament. And that's not how God says He is. The character that God begins with, I am a merciful and gracious God. I am slow to anger. And I abound in steadfast, faithful love. I'm faithful and I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clear the guilty. That is how God sums up who he is. That is the character of God. That is the name of God. That is the glory of God. What we have at this moment is now the crossroads of a crisis. God has said, I cannot go with these people. And we need a solution to the problem. Moses has gone up and is interceding. And yet God has said, they're wicked. And I can't go with you. I'm going to consume them. That's what they deserve. Judgment should rightly fall upon Israel. And Moses is pleading, but it has to be that you come with us. 
And so how can a holy God live with a sinful people? This is the big issue of Exodus. It's the big issue of the scriptures. It is the big issue of human history. God wants to live with his people, but we are a sinful people. He is light. We are dark. He is pure. We are corrupt. And how are we going to handle this? What is God going to do? And this passage is the answer. How is God able to live a holy God, a pure God? How is he able to live with sinful people? Because he is merciful and gracious. Because he is slow to anger. Because he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Because he forgives sin and transgression and iniquity. That's how God can live with his people. This is who God is. This is what God wants the world to see. In fact, this is such the character of God. Why does the prophet Jonah not want to go to Assyria to not go preach to Nineveh? What is the whole problem that Jonah has that he refuses to go? What does he quote? But this very passage, I knew that you were a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. I knew you would forgive those people and their wicked people. And that's your character, God. That was a strange thing to point your finger at God about. (laughs) I knew you were forgiving. I knew you were slow to anger. And he's he's like, how dare you? But that's the character of God. And Jonah, as the prophet of God, knew intimately that that's exactly the character of God. That that's exactly what he will do. That he desires to forgive. That he is slow to anger. That he is merciful. That he is compassionate. That he is gracious. That he is willing to forgive those sins. Therefore, it is so important what we see in God declaring of himself here that we do not have a one-dimensional view of God. Because it's very easy to do that. You will often hear these one-dimensional views of God. Well, God is only loving and compassionate and forgiving, and he never judges. You know, he's not going to be mad about the stuff we're doing. It's, It's all right. He's just all love. He's all love. He's cosmic teddy bear. He gives out hugs to everybody. And everybody's a okay. Or what's the other side? Oh, he's wrath. He, watch out. Look out. One false step and you're cooked. And I don't know what we're going to do. If we do one false move, it's over. Neither of those are right. We cannot have a one-dimensional view of God. That God says, I am merciful. I am gracious. I am slow to anger. I forgive. But those things are on his terms. He will state to us when that mercy comes and by which he will be gracious and why he is slow to anger. That we do not have the right to go, well, that means I can live however I want to live. I'll just do whatever I want to do because God's a gracious God. He's okay with everything that I do. No, now we're trying to put God on our terms. We put his mercy on my terms. 
And the big message of Exodus is, no, that can't be right because God has said, I should consume you and I won't go with you. That's how much sin separates us from God. There is no way that we can come to the character of God and think, well, sin must be okay because he is a forgiving God. You aren't looking at God right. God makes it abundantly clear. No, what should happen is your judgment. But only because I am gracious and merciful, I will continue to go with you. And that's the answer that God is giving to Moses. This is the full answer. This is the full display. Moses wants to know, how am I going to know that you are going to go with us? That you will stay with us on this journey and you will not leave even though the people are sinful. Because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving transgression and sin and iniquity. That's why God will go with them. They ought to receive judgment. There is no solution to the problem here, is there? Except God says, because of my own name, Because of my own character, because of my own faithfulness, because of my own goodness, because of who I am, not because of who you are, but because of who I am, I will go with you. This becomes the big deal to Moses. Notice verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. I love that, that response. In knowing who God is and when you begin to comprehend the name of God, that this is the glory of God on display. When we begin to get our minds around this idea that we have a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and is abounding in the steadfast love and forgives transgression, iniquity and sin, the most natural response of the heart is worship. That's where worship comes from. Worship does not come from, I guess it's Sunday, we better go worship. Worship comes from an acute awareness of who God is. And the more I get to know God, the more I get on my knees and worship Him because I know I ought to be consumed and I am grateful that He is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving my transgression, sin, and iniquity. Moses immediately worships. That's where worship comes from. That's the heart of worship. Worship is not obligation and responsibility. Worship is not, why do we have to come on Wednesday night? Worship is not, do we really have to show up for Bible classes? Worship is not those kinds of mentalities. Worship is, do you see God? If you do, you want to worship. And if you don't want to worship, you don't see God. You haven't seen Him. You're not looking at Him. You haven't seen who he is and you haven't seen what he's doing. Moses just bows down because of this glorious name of who God is. And notice verse 9. Moses says, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. This confirms what we saw in chapter 33. 
Moses, after hearing the character of God and worships God, now says, go in our midst. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's back in chapter 25, verse 8. We need the tabernacle. We need you to go in our midst. Reinstitute the tabernacle. Be in the midst of us. And notice what the answer that Moses gives. This doesn't sound like the thing you ought to argue with God. Now, if I found favor in your sight, please go in the midst of us because it is a stiff-necked people. No, Moses, don't say that. (laughs) Go with us and we're going to do better. You know, we're not going to be so bad. That would be more logical, right? No, Moses says, go with us because they are a stiff-necked people. What's Moses trying to say? It's because of who we are that we need you in our midst. The more I am aware of how sinful and stiff-necked I am, the more aware I am of needing the presence of God in my life. What seems to be a counterintuitive argument, we're terrible, so go with us, is exactly what Moses uses. You have to go with us, we need you. In fact, think about what is so critical to the tabernacle that Moses would make the argument, because they are a stiff-necked people, you must be in our midst with this tabernacle. What's the tabernacle all about? A priesthood that is making atonement for sins. You have to be in our midst. You have to go before us because that was the place of atonement. We are going to construct this tabernacle that Moses has already received instructions for until the derailment of the, of the idolatry of the golden calf. That we're going to have an Ark of the Covenant and that's going to be the place of mercy where God will meet His people and blood will be sprinkled on it and God will meet the people there and forgive their sins. We need that. And that's what Moses is arguing. We are a stiff-necked people. And we need you in our presence so that you can atone for our sins. That you can forgive us. This is the picture of redemption. Not only here, but for all time. This is the picture of redemption. We break the covenant. Intercession is made. God renews the covenant, causing the people to worship him and causing the people to desire for God to be in their midst. That's the whole scheme of redemption right there. I can make a much smaller book than those other ones that were called the scheme of redemption. That's it right there. That's the whole picture. We violate God's law. God gives us an intercessor. God renews the covenant. And all worship because he does. In fact, that's what's so powerful about where this goes. Look at verse 10. God says, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels. Such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. 
this declaration is the full realization that God is truly merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Because what God is doing is renewing the covenant. What Moses symbolized at the beginning of chapter 32 is he comes down the mountain. He shatters those tablets. The covenant is broken. And at this moment, now the Lord says, we're going to put that covenant back together again. I'm making a covenant. This covenant is being restored. And the reason we should be astounded by that is because God has absolutely no obligation to this covenant, does he? The covenant has been violated by the people. Moses could say, you need to come with us. And God can say, you broke the covenant. I don't have any obligation to go with you. You broke your end of the deal. We're out of contract. It's over. And we are seeing the character of God, this faithfulness of God, this steadfast love of God, that even though the people are stiff-necked and stubborn, God says, even though you have been faithless, I will still be faithful. I will maintain my end of the covenant. And notice the language of it. I'm going to do something you wouldn't believe. Now that's pretty stunning because they've seen something you wouldn't believe already. The ten plagues. They've already seen a whole lot of the hand of God. And God says in verse 10, I'm going to show you marvels and I'm going to do signs and I'm going to do works. It is going to be an awesome thing. And I think there's far more in view than just simply the conquest of the land. But there was going to be an awesome thing in the cross that God was going to do that was going to trump all the wonders that God had ever accomplished in the past. You're going to see something beyond amazing of what I'm going to do for this people and how I'm going to reconcile and how I'm going to save. Now, I don't have time to read from verses 11 to 28, but I'd like for you just a moment to scan your eyes over this, that God says, I'm going to make this covenant. And notice that it is not a restatement of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say, now I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and, and then just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. He doesn't do that right here. Which I think would be something that we would expect, okay? Moses is going to write all these things down. Notice verse 27, write these words in accordance with the words that I made, I've made a covenant with you and Israel. So it's a renewing of the covenant, bringing the covenant back into effect. But the highlight of this chapter is not, now let's remember the Ten Commandments. Rather, what God does is He gives certain decrees, certain commandments that give the identity for who these people will be in the covenant. What God is not doing is saying, okay, now here are my rules. What I want you to do is keep them. Instead, what he does is he points out certain laws and rules by which those are the laws that show who Israel is. Notice, for example, in verse 11 through verse 12, he says, first thing, don't make treaties with other nations and peoples. 
And you say, now that's a strange one to start with. Why not murder or adultery, you know, something. First thing, don't make treaties with the foreign nations. Don't make treaties with foreign people. Why? Well, he tells them, in verse 12, lest they become a snare in your midst. I don't want your heart stolen away by these people. So don't get into agreements with them. Don't make treaties and covenants with them. You're my people. And so don't do that. I want your heart to belong to me and not be pulled away. He then goes on in the next few verses, 13 through 17, and says, don't have idols. No idolatrous practices. Why? Same thing. Because I don't want your heart to be stolen away from me. I want you to love me and serve me. I don't want your heart to be pulled by any false gods. And then you'll notice he then pictures different aspects of their worship in verses 18 to 26. He tells them, celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. To remember your redemption, how you were brought out of Egypt. To keep the Sabbath, celebrate the Feast of Weeks, bring in the first fruits. Why is he telling Israel these things of all things? Because these are the things that makes Israel distinct. This is covenant identity. This shows you're the people of God. You don't mess with the nations or have treaties or agreements with them. You are mine. You don't worship idols like the rest of the world. You worship me. And then he speaks of some worship distinctions. Celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Weeks. These times when they would come and remember how they were slaves in Egypt. In fact, remember the Sabbath is a reminder how you were slaves in Egypt and God let you out by a mighty hand, Deuteronomy 5. Remember your redemption. Bring in the first fruits, a remembering of that God is the one who has blessed you. Why are they to do all these things? Just so that God can say, well, here's my rules, hope you keep it. But that these were the things that made Israel distinct from the rest of the world. This is what made them different. And by being different, it showed they were in covenant relationship with God. They were in relationship with him. They didn't look like the nations. They didn't behave like them. They didn't do treaties like them. They didn't worship gods like them. And they didn't worship like them. Do you realize that the New Covenant does the same thing for us? This is the whole point of why we also have covenant distinctions. There are some things that you would say on the surface sound awfully strange. Why are we baptized? Well, because God says so. Yeah, that's a bad answer. (laughs) There's a far bigger deal than that. It's not just simply, okay, well, let's just do what God says. That's a covenant distinction. You are no longer living for the old self. That old self has died and has been buried. And now you have come up out of that water and you are a new person. You are reflecting the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and identifying to him in that way. It's not just simply get underwater. It's a covenant distinction. This is something that sets you apart from the world and shows you to be different. Your life is aligned to God now in covenant relationship with Him. How about the Lord's Supper? 
another strange covenant distinction that we have that we'll participate in this morning. Why remember that? Because in the bread we remember a Savior who came and who gave His life and sacrificed Himself for our sins so that we could be set free from our sins. In the fruit of the vine, we remember the blood of the covenant sealing us into a covenant, remembering that it's only through this new covenant that we have the forgiveness of sins, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. These are distinctions that are given to us that show us to be different from the world. We do this to remember who we are, what our identity is. How about even just worshiping on the first day of the week? Israel had a Sabbath that distinguished them. We have a distinguishing thing too. Worship the Lord on the first day of the week. That's the day the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. There is a distinctive that's put there. Why do we have these things? We could go on and on. I'll just stop there with those three. Do we have all these covenant distinctions? Why? You know, it's so sad because we've come along and said, well, because there's five acts of worship and we need to do our five acts. And if you get your five acts out of the way, God's happy. That's not why they're there. It's not so we could count off and see how fast can we get the five things done. You think we can squeeze it in 15 minutes and we can get out of here and back to life? These things are given to us to remind us and define us about who you and I are. We do these things because it reminds us who we belong to and what God has done. Everything you read about in the Exodus, every sacrifice, every feast, and every holiday that they were given was so that you'd remember how God brought you out by a mighty hand. Everything went back to the Exodus. Everything they did was always tied to, I saved you, I rescued you, I delivered you, and I brought you into that land. Don't you forget it, and you keep these things on that. And how sad it is that what happened to Israel as time went on, you get to the book of Malachi, the prophet says, the people are going around saying, oh, what a weariness that we have to keep all these feasts and Sabbaths. We don't want to do that. They had turned it into a bunch of rules. All the things you have to do for God. And God's saying, I didn't ask you to have to do it. I'm wanting you to remember who you are. Don't forget who you are. You don't do this as some kind of appeasement to a wrathful God. God is gracious and merciful And we do this because we are remembering what God has done for us. It defines our identity. It speaks to who we are. And that's why we see these things in the new covenant for us. I think so often we forget why these covenant distinctions are critical. I want you to zero in in particular that God shows them why these covenant distinctions are critical in verse 14. Right in the middle of describing, don't make treaties with the nations, don't worship foreign gods, 
Keep the various feast days. Keep the Sabbath. Remember your redemption. Why, Lord? Why do we need to do all this? Look at verse 14. You shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Isn't it interesting in the midst of describing who he is? I am merciful and gracious. I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm slow to anger. I'm forgiving iniquity, sin, and transgression, by no means clearing the guilty. Then turns around and says, by the way, don't forget another characteristic of me. The reason why your covenant distinctiveness is so critical is because I am a jealous God. Now, when we think of the word jealous, we, I think, exclusively think in negative terms. We just go, jealous, that's bad. Ooh, we don't like saying that about God. But there is one relationship in which we understand being jealous being a good characteristic. Marriage. In marriage, that's a good thing. I will not share my spouse with another. In fact, I don't look like a loving husband if I go, you know what, I really don't care if you're with me or not. You know, go be with whoever you want to be. Go do whatever you want to do. I'm okay with that. Whatever. Whatever makes you happy. Whatever you want to do. Say, what's the matter with you? If you love that person, then you are jealous for that relationship. You will not share that person with another. They cannot have that relationship with another person. Only with you. That's a positive. That's a deep love. And that's what God is saying. He is jealous for a relationship with us. He will not share us with anybody else. He will not allow us to share ourselves with others. And think about it. We are glad for that. What kind of God would we serve if God said, you know what? I really don't care if you're with me or not. If you want to go to the other idols, I don't really care. You know, do whatever you want to do. Come back to me. I don't care. Doesn't matter to me. You'd say like, well, what kind of strange God is that? He doesn't even care. No, God says, I'm trying to express to you how much I care. I am jealous for you. I desire you. I want to be with you. I want to be in relationship with you. Do you see how from Exodus 24 now to this moment comes full circle? I want to be in relationship with you. I want to be in covenant with you. I want to be in your midst. And I don't want to share you with anybody else because I care about you that much. I love you that much. I want to be with you and you alone. He cares If we are not completely devoted to Him, and will you please be blown away by that notion? It's hard to think of God that way. Well, what does He really care if I do? He cares. He cares. And that speaks to a deep love. Just as much as your spouse cares. If you're never around and don't seem to care, and you're just off doing whatever, and you're never around, well, they care. Why? Because there's love, deep love that's under that. And that's what God is saying to us. 
God is not giving you a bunch of rules and going now, you know, just jump over these hurdles. What God is expressing in these laws and commandments and rules and statutes is how much he desires to be with you and that this is the way we can be with him. He wants a relationship with us that badly. Uh, mine doesn't, I can't, my, I don't, it's hard to comprehend that that's how deeply God loves us. That's why, even though the people ought to be consumed, the character of God trumps the scene. I'm merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving transgression, iniquity, and sin because I want to be in relationship with you that badly. I'm doing everything so that you and I can be in relationship together. And I want to pull all this in to just three simple ideas that you would see Jesus in those very characteristics. The whole reason Jesus comes is so that there is a covenant that we can belong to so that we can be in relationship with God. Jesus comes and he brings a new covenant and he brings it to the people so that we can be in fellowship with God. Why does God send his son? Because that's how much he wants to be in relationship with us. Jesus comes because he is jealous to have a relationship with us. He doesn't want to share us. He is so profoundly and deeply devoted to you and to me that he's just asking you to be faithful to that relationship. I love you so much. Stay faithful to me. I've given everything to you. Stay faithful to me. I desire you and you alone. Be faithful to me. And in Jesus, then, you are seeing the greatest display of the name of God that is proclaimed here. For in Jesus, what do you see? Mercy and grace. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Forgiving transgression, iniquity, and sin. But will no, by no means clear the guilty of those who hate him. That is the God we serve. And may the first characteristic you think of when you think about God is that we have a merciful and gracious God and that's why we're still breathing. Because he is so desirous for you to come and be in a relationship with him. That's why he created us. And that's why you read from the pages of Genesis to Revelation everything that God does. Everything that God does is to try to show the world how much... He wants a relationship with you and me. 
May we not be like Israel that shrugs our shoulders and goes, oh well. And may we not be like Israel that looks at what God has asked us to do as a bunch of rules. And may we not be like Israel that looks at worship as merely a duty and a requirement. This is who you are. And in all you're doing, you are displaying your love and faithfulness for your God and Savior. You ready to respond to this great gospel? We encourage you to come to Jesus. We encourage you to see God in the light that says that's how much he wants you. That's how much he cares about you. That's how much God is devoted to you. In all of our rebellion and unfaithfulness, how God is devoted to us. Romans 5 is such a favorite passage of mine. Because while we were still enemies, while we were still sinners, while we were still completely against God, God says, I've proved my love for you by sending my own son to die for you. We encourage you to come to him this very morning. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?